My name is Brock, and this is the Dungeon Master's Toolkit Podcast. Hello and welcome to episode 42. On today's episode, I talked to Thane about Powered by the Apocalypse and Forged in the Dark games. We talk a lot about mechanics and examples. So if you've been interested in the last couple of episodes where we've done a lot of talking about Dungeon World specifically, we're going to get a little bit of a deeper dive into some of those mechanics and kind of how they can play out at the table. Before we get started with the episode, there is a charity event that I would like you guys to know about. One of the things I love about the TTRPG community as a whole is that it's been trying to be more open and inviting to all people. This charity stream is a fundraiser for the Transgender Education Network in Texas. It's going to be featuring games like Caltrap Core, Blades in the Dark, Fiasco, and Epic Level D&D, and it'll be hosted by Tavernot. There will be merch, there's going to be a couple designs, fulfillment for Europe and the USA, All profits will be going to the charity. There's also going to be give-outs throughout the day. Dice by Phoenix Dice, Sourcebook PDFs and Map Packs by Awfully Queer Heroes, Cookies by Critical Hit Cookies, a copy of the Story Engine deck and the Deck of Worlds by Story Engine, and commissions by Charlie Chorn and Rosie Lav. Hopefully I'm saying those all correctly. There's also some stretch goal giveaways, including even more Dice by Phoenix Dice, a set of metal dice by Story Engine, a one-shot by Todd Moonbounce. Todd was actually a guest, and he's episode 27 if you want to go check out him. There's also going to be um, more merch from the event and commissions and more. So this is all happening on Sunday, March 27th at noon CEST, which is Central European Summertime. So check on Google or wherever for conversion to your time zone. And there's going to be a lot going on, so for more information, go ahead and check out the link tree at tavernot.tv, and I will include a link in the description. And with that, let's jump into the episode. Welcome, everybody. Today I have Liam, also known as Thane, on Discord with me. Welcome, Liam. Hey there. It's good to be back. Yes, yeah, so for new listeners, uh, if you want to hear how Liam got started in tabletop role-playing games and that sort of thing, you can go back to episode number eight uh, to listen to that interview. But today we're going to be talking more about Dungeon World and Powered by the Apocalypse games. What was the first Powered by the Apocalypse game that you played? Uh, so it was Dungeon World, in fact. Uh, and I think I might have talked about this a little bit last time I was on, but I ran it straight up wrong the first time I played it. I think I had this idea of how role... It was like it was not only my first Powered by the Apocalypse game, but it was also one of my first RPGs. And I think it was definitely the first one I ever DM'd. And so I had this idea of how it was supposed to work, and I ran it that way, where like enemies have turns, and I there's initiative and all this stuff. And I think, on the one hand, that was me being silly and not reading the manual. And I think also there are certain ways in which the manual didn't quite make as clear how things were supposed to work, if that makes sense. Uh, I think if I remember correctly, I haven't looked at the, the book in a while, but I think that the the layout of the actual book is kind of wonky, where it, it starts you off with some like weird rules that really aren't applicable until later. Um, I think- 
yeah, there's like a there's a I think probably one of the issues with it is you know how every every single RPG rulebook you know we've all read a million of these like every single one starts with kind of this boilerplate text just in case this is your first time reading an RPG book of like the game master is this person you will need some pencils and some dice and some people <laughs> like that you know that text is at the front of every RPG book basically. And it, it kind of is shuffled, it, like the really important stuff about like the game is a conversation, there are no initiative turns, it kind of sits with that text. And they also, I think, probably, in my opinion at least, don't do enough. I think, you know, it's admirable that they tried to make it stand on its own as its own thing. But I think the problem is a lot of the book assumes that you've never heard of or played an RPG before. And the problem with that is everyone has heard of D&D. So everyone's walking into that book with some preconceived notions about how RPGs work. You know what I mean? Well, and I would even argue that uh, Dungeon World specifically, like the theme of Dungeon World is D&D in the Apocalypse Engine, the Powered by the Apocalypse Engine, right? So yeah, it's making a lot of assumptions that you're going to be familiar with 5th edition or or D&D in general. Um, so yeah, I, I guess I do agree there. And I will say that I also, the first time I ran it, I, I ran it incorrectly. Also trying to have monsters somewhat have turns. Um, and for me, it was because I came from having played D and D and a couple of other, uh, tabletop RPGs. And in most cases, they all have turns and that's kind of how you operate, uh, you know, a, a standard game uh so this like paradigm shift was a little bit harder to get around for me Mm -hmm. yeah there was i think there could have been more of more referential stuff in there like you know because i think it it does kind of go both ways where it both assumes you'll know a lot of stuff about 5e but then also assumes you've never seen an rpg before and so it doesn't feel the need to say enemies don't have turns but I think that maybe it would be helpful if it would say things like enemies do not have turns like they might in other RPGs. This is different from like how might it might be in other RPGs. And because I remember one of my biggest frustrations with that book, and I, I for for clarity, I love Dungeon World. Like I, I'm, you know, I I think you know, just given I'm such a big fan of it, I'm I'm also probably one of its harshest critics. Um, but I think like when I remember one of my first big frustrations with the book was. Uh, you know, the wizard has spells for their uh, for their levels, and I liked. I, first of all, I just like that Dungeon World ditches the whole first level, second level, th- third level spell thing. Oh man, yeah, D because <laughs> it's so confusing. Like once you get it, you get it. But like for a new player, it's like, wait, so as a second level person, can I cast second level spells? That's finally that's okay. They unify that, great. But they put cantrips in the wizard class, and they never in the book explain what cantrips are (laughs) and so i would like and i had never heard the word cantrip before because i like i you know i had a passing knowledge of DD, but i'd never played it and so it said cantrips and i was like what's a cantrip what does that mean and i remember trying to google it and just getting really confused because then there was all this DD lingo that i'd never heard on the DD wiki and so i was just so lost and uh yeah i i don't know i i think like it's it's probably like um i the criticism that i hear of it all the time is you know it was such a great and important game but there are a lot of systems that do it what it did better now you know and i i wouldn't be surprised if that's the case i haven't played 
a lot of um, at least fantasy. Well, I haven't really played a lot of other Powered by the Apocalypse games, but I have read uh, a number of other ones. Mm-hmm. Um, but there haven't. Are you familiar of any that are like specifically kind of fantasy, you know, D and D like adjacent as far as theme goes? Uh, yeah, I am. Um, I think probably the biggest one that comes to mind is Fellowship. Have you heard of Fellowship? I have heard of Fellowship, yep, and I have not read that one. <laughs> it's a good one. Um, it's a little weird. I think it commits to the really out-of-left-field direction of um, of a lot of Powered by the Apocalypse games, where I think, you know, Dungeon World does a lot to not really shake the the boat, if you will. Um, it You know, I like it, like, for example, I think one of the, uh, a big criticism of it is, you know, it's one of the few... Uh, powered by the Apocalypse games that has health numbers. Uh, most Powered by the Apocalypse games don't have that. Um, they have some sort of, you know, you either have, like, conditions that you're marking, and then if you mark a certain number of conditions, you go down or whatever, but, like, it's one of the few that has that. And I, personally, I'm not really a fan of health numbers. Um, I think there's so many better ways you can do it. But Fellowship goes even further in that, like, it unifies your stats and your health. Like, when you take damage in Fellowship, one of your stats gets marked, and then that stat is, like, injured. It's really, it's, like, kind of like in Masks, but it's even more unified, and I would say not explained the best, but it's good. It, and it, it the thing is, is that it, it goes really left field. So, instead of an established, you know, like, I think Dungeon World kind of operates on an established D&D-like world, you can make it whatever you want, but, like, it assumes certain things. Um, fellowship is actually built around this idea of when you play, you, you know, like one person plays the orc, one person plays the elf. There is no choosing your race. Your race is your playbook. And so the elf Uh. isn't necessarily a pointy eared forest dweller who's really good with a bow and arrow. It's more like asking, okay, what defines an elf an elf could be a mermaid an elf could be a fairy an elf could be any number of these things what makes an elf an elf is this sort of magical mystical thing right and what makes a dwarf a dwarf is someone who is really about like building things or destroy like some some sort of like mining or something like that what makes an orc an orc is kind of a penchant for destruction like not necessarily violent destruction but some like maybe a demolitionist um these are kind of like and so it's built around this idea that okay the person who's playing the elf instead of us deciding together what you know what what do the elf society look like or whatever there is a move in game it's mechanical where when someone anyone at the table has a question about well oh do the elves i don't know are are, are elves vegetarians there is a move that triggers that then says, okay, the player of the elf has to answer that question. And so they get, they are solely in control of the lore of their people, if you will. And so you can get some pretty wild stuff, pretty out of left field stuff. And I like it for that, to be honest, but you could play it much more conventionally too. Um, That's one of the things that I like about uh, Powered by the Apocalypse in general. And as I've watched online streams of people playing to kind of learn how to play the systems, a lot of it focuses in on that allowing players to have input into the story, mm-hmm. which I believe adds to the immersion of your players because now they are they get a say in the world, right? It's not 
I came here and here's, you know, I picked this race and, you know, the DM has everything laid out about like the two sub races and this is where they're from. And, and, it, and it's very strict uh, to this more kind of fluid. Uh, you can be surprised as the dungeon master um, and you, you can make up the lore that makes sense. And, and in this case, since um, only one player can play each race, then that player is, you know, kind of full control over, you know, what does their culture look like? Um, yeah. And the other thing, I didn't realize that this was a move, but it it's in all of the Powered by the Apocalypse games. I like how the mechanics of the game are tied so strictly to the fiction and the role-playing mm-hmm. because it forces it forces all of it to go together, right? Whereas in a game like, you know, D&D 5th Edition, and I mentioned this on my other episode um, about Dungeon World, in 5th Edition, you can, you can basically play out a combat, and all you could ever say is, like, I move here and I attack or I trigger this ability, and you, you could never mention anything about, like, what is happening in the fiction. Um, not that that's necessarily bad, but it's kind of bland at the same time. And yeah. with the powered by the apocalypse games, you have to wrap, you have to, you have to mess with the fiction of the game before the mechanics trigger. Yeah. I think that that's definitely like, I think that powered by the apocalypse is not for everyone. And that's, you know, that's fine. I like that. As you put it, like, you know, it, it allowed like the, the sort of, putting the onus of creating the fiction a little on the players too is great because it allows, it also takes some stuff off the DM's plate. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's not as much of like a full-time job to be a DM of a dungeon world game. The most mechanical game that I would ever really go for is a blades in the dark. And because you know, even to like to fight in D and D you don't really have to engage with the fiction. The basically if something is on your character sheet in D and D you can just pretty much do it unless Right, for yeah. example, you're tied up or something, right? Um, whereas that is not the case in most Powered by the Apocalypse games, uh, or even in Blades in the Dark, I suppose, because you have to, well, maybe less so in a Forged in the Dark game, because um, those roles are typically more open, but with like the moves in Powered by the Apocalypse, you have to do something that would specifically trigger a, a move to fire. Um, yeah. And personally, I feel like that... Uh, at least in the few amount of times that I have run D&D versus running um, Dungeon World, I feel like in terms of uh, role-playing and getting players to kind of get into their character, I feel like Dungeon World, or and maybe other Powered by the Apocalypse games as well, tends to produce more of a role-play response from the players because they know that in order to trigger something, they have to do something. So then, you you know, they have to go through that uh, exercise of describing everything and you know to make sure it triggers the thing that they want it to trigger they get a little bit more specific or or they elaborate more so it tends to lead to better role playing in my experience uh, you know yeah. with my small sample size of people that I've played with I don't think it's even necessarily that I mean yes like it, the act of having to describe it does bring that role playing out and what I think is important about that is not that you need to necessarily force role play out of people, right? Like I am a person that loves to role play, but when I play D and D, I just I don't know I don't role play very much because I don't have to, which is fine. But like when you force people to do that little exercise, it's not just that you're making them role play in that moment; you're also setting the tone of the game and generally encouraging them to role play 
across the board, which I like, you know? Yeah, and I think that since the mechanics rely on the roleplay and on the fiction uh, more than just, you know, whatever abilities you have, then it's it's more of a natural transition, especially for new players, I feel like, because they're like, oh, well, to, to trigger this thing, I have to... I have to do the thing, so I'm going to describe that, right? Whereas in D&D, it's like, can I do this thing? Yeah, sure. Okay, I, I'll i do that. You know, and then that's that's it, right? You know, yeah. not not always. And I think as, especially veteran D&D players, probably are more so on the lines of, they do go ahead and narrate things and give weapon attacks, like little flashes of, of narrative to, you know, to kind of spice up the game. But again, it's not tied to the mechanics, so you don't, you don't have to, or you're not really encouraged to do so. Yeah. I think that the, the, like the biggest to be, so overall, all the moves in dungeon world, like the way that they work and the way that they work in powered by the apocalypse games in general. And so in apocalypse world as well, like they're designed really well. And I have read so many different, you know, Reddit posts and blog posts and all sorts of you know, PDFs I just found on Google Plus because that's where the PBTA community used to live. Rest in peace, Google Plus. <laughs> Unfortunately, um, yeah. Like I've read so many documents and so many, so many just texts about how to design a good move in a Powered by the Apocalypse game. And there's so much that goes into it and they're so interesting. And I, you know, I've, I've been playing or I've been reading and interested in, in Dungeon World for probably go, getting close to a decade. And... Like, I think I'm still not perfect at it. There's just so much depth to it, and I love that. Um, but I think that the biggest innovation that Dungeon World, at least I think this was Dungeon World, because I don't know of any other Powered by the Apocalypse games that have this. I know Apocalypse World doesn't. Is the biggest innovation is Defy Danger. Are you familiar with Defy Danger? Mm-hmm. But uh, I, you can you can mention it since, uh, in case other people aren't yeah. familiar with it. Yeah. So Defy Danger is essentially, you know, in most Powered by the Apocalypse games in general as well, for people not aware, you know, as as Brock and I have been saying, you have to trigger the move through the fiction. So if you want to attack someone, you need to be in a position where attacking them makes sense. Instead of like, oh, I just attack them. The move actually says when you engage in combat with a person that you're like standing on equal footing with or something like that, which means fictionally, if I'm tied up or you know, they're just way, way bigger than me or any number of other fictional reasons, I can't attack them. I can't use that move. And most of those moves have sort of a prescribed, okay, when you hack and slash is the attack one, you roll with strength. Or when you volley, which is the shooting one, you roll with dexterity. Cool. The best move to me is defy danger because defy danger doesn't actually have a prescribed stat associated with it, which means you can defy danger in so many different ways. You can defy danger using your dexterity if you just jump out of the way, or you can defy danger with your strength. Let's say a rock is falling you, uh, falling on top of you. You can defy danger with your dexterity by jumping out of the way. You can use your strength to just try and like hold it up. You can defy danger with your constitution to just take the hit. You can defy danger with your intelligence to notice that there's another rock underneath it and you could knock it out and it'll roll the other way or any number of other things. Like, it, en- it engages the player's mind to make them think, okay, I need to get out of this situation, so I very clearly need to use Defy Danger. I suck at strength. I'm not going to do that. So I'm going to try and find a way to use my constitution, because I have a very high constitution as my character, to get out of this situation. And it engages their brain of actually saying, how would my character get out of this situation? 
Because even with a hack and slash, a lot of the times with a hack and slash, because you're using strength, every hack and slash looks about the same. You know what I mean? Because they all use strength. They're all, you're hitting the guy. And that's cool. But if you could use a different attack, a different um, stat to attack someone, like your intelligence to say, oh, I know exactly how this person fights. I've studied their exact style of fighting, so I know how to counter it or something like that. That's really interesting. And that's what Forged in the Dark is built on. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to elaborate a little bit on this Defy Danger, and then I think we should talk about the Forged in the Dark stuff. Yeah. Um, so the closest analog to uh, Defy Danger to me in like a D&D game would be like making a save. Mm-hmm. Right. It's it's kind of like, oh, the rock is falling on you, you know, in D D it'd be like make a deck save, or how do you how do you get out of the way? You know, in in that situation, most of the time everybody would probably try to dodge and it'd be a deck save, right? Or traps or I mean even spells will say you have to make a wisdom save or this happens, or you have to make a strength save or con save or whatever it is, you know, usually related to the, the specific stat. Um so that's kind of the closest thing, but it also, like you mentioned, it does allow you to handle things differently. And we mentioned that uh, monsters don't have turns necessarily. So instead of, you know, let's say you're fighting an orc or something, the orc comes charging at you. He doesn't make an attack roll. You just say, Hey, orc's going to come and hit you. Uh, what do you do? So, you know, but one option could be, you know, try to block the hit or take the hit with like constitution. You could try to get out of the way with dexterity. You could, you know, uh, many bards I'm sure would want to send an insult their way and try to kind of like distract them a little bit and, and maybe step to the side and, and try to attack them that way. Right. So those different, uh, there's different ways to engage. Like you said, uh, that might not be just, okay, it's always a deck saver. It's always a this or whatever. Um, yeah, I, th- I think it definitely opens up to more creative solutions, um, and and it's just built right in. Uh, whereas some of that stuff in D anD D might be like, uh, how as the DM, how do I call this to to make sure that that works? Uh, but going back to the uh, the orc is attacking example, right? You can also kind of set the uh, the consequences of the action based on what the player did. So like. Let's say you decide to block it with your shield and have you make like a con roll. If you fail, you know you're probably going to take damage, um, or if you six or you know partial success, you might take a little bit of damage or something because you're taking the brunt of the hit. But what happens if you decided to dodge out of the way? Well, if you fail, you didn't dodge, probably take damage. If you partially succeed, you might get out of the way. You don't take damage like you did if you're trying to block the attack, uh, but maybe you're like laying prone because you fell over when you were you know jumping out of the way. Or if it was charisma and you tried to throw them off with an insult um, and you fail, you know, you take damage. Maybe that's the standard. But if it's a partial... You take worse damage because you made them angry. (laughs) (laughs) Right. There is something, you know, you can change the... uh, Just because they can use any stat doesn't necessarily mean that the consequences are always going to be equal uh, as to what happens you know, if you dodge and get out of the way, you might miss something completely. But a success, successfully blocking like a dragon attack or something, maybe you still take a small amount of damage because, you know, that's just just too strong of a thing to deal with. But the consequences of not uh, dodging out of the way maybe would be worse than just trying to take a smaller amount of damage. You know, I, hopefully I'm explaining that well enough. 
I think it's very telling that, you know, th- like, because this part of the game, this thing you're describing, I think is so fun. And it's what Forged in the Dark is built around. I think it's very telling that, you know, a lot of people when they start DMing are saying, oh, how do I get my players to use stats that aren't the stats they have plus three in? You know what I mean? Min-maxing is such an issue. And so it's like, oh, I, you know, I have this, I have a player who has plus three in dex and charisma and they refuse to do anything that does not involve dex and charisma. And that can get really annoying as a DM. And I think it's, you know, on the on the flip side, in Forged in the Dark, that's actually kind of encouraged. I think in a Forged in the Dark game, you it's kind of rare that you would see someone roll with any stat that they don't have a couple of points in. Because the fun of the game, it's saying, okay, you're gonna be able to roll with whatever you with whatever you want. You're gonna be able to roll with any stat you choose, as long as you can justify it fictionally. And that may change the fictional outcome, as you put it. And so Use whatever stats you want. And that's also, I think, why Forged in the Dark can have dice mechanics that are so much harsher than a D&D, you know? Yeah, that's fair. Because especially with Blades in the Dark specifically, the player gets to pick, I'm pretty sure, right? In the rules, it says that they get to decide what they're rolling with. Yeah. Um, but the DM or the GM gets control over the consequences that are set. So, like, if you did something really off the wall with a stat that maybe doesn't make sense, the GM can also, like, set the consequences to be really off the wall if you happen to fail or something. Exactly. It's like, a, it's, it's, it's brilliant. And that's the way in which it's like Defy Danger, where it's like, you know, in a, even a dungeon world, if you said, uh, in, so in, sorry, in, um, in Blades in the Dark, there is a stat called Wreck, um, which is... Basically, wreck is is about like what is about destructive power. It's not about finesse. It's not about um, any sort of intimidation or anything. It's just about brute strength, which means that if I said, you know, I want to try and convince this lord to help me, and I'm going to use wreck in a dungeon world, a DM would just say, no, you you can't do that, which is fair because that makes very little sense. Um, but in a Blades in the Dark, that's allowed. But then the DM gets to say, all right, well, if you're trying to convince this, like, really posh lord to help you in this very, like, complicated political situation, and you're use- and the main skill you're employing is your ability to destroy things, like, you're just going to, like, be knocking things over in his apartment or whatever, or however the player decides to justify that, the GM gets to say, all right, well, then, obviously, the consequences of that are he's going to like call the cops on you. Whereas if you'd used something like a, one of your charisma stats, he'd just kind of tell you to go away if you failed. Right. The The consequences are not the same depending on what you rolled. Um, and you could even put yourself in, in danger too, right? Or you could put him in danger. Let's say you rolled, um, like you rolled poorly. One of the ways that could go wrong is, let's say you like start beating the guy up and then... Um, you 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 rolled terribly, so you actually like end up killing him or like seriously injuring him to the point where he's not useful. Or now you're you know now you have other problems like you mentioned with the police. Whereas failing at like a charisma type check would maybe ha- he may just insult you or something, you know. And it's it can lead to very different uh, different outcomes. Yeah, it's a it, and it's also on the other side of like. Okay, what is it's I think I you know, they have specific terminology in Blades in the Dark. I don't remember it exactly. I think it's called position and effect or something. But sounds right. 
Yeah, but in my head, the way I think of it is basically best case scenario, worst case scenario. Okay, so you're using your charisma to try and convince this lord to help you. What is the best case scenario? He helps you and you have a good relationship with him now. That's really good best case scenario. And worst case scenario is he's like, go away, shut up. And like, maybe he's annoyed with you in general now. That's your worst case. With Wreck, or with one of your more violent skills, your absolute best case is he will help you, but then he may, you know, hire someone to try and kill you, or something like that after you leave, and your worst case scenario is way worse than that. So it's like, there's no semblance of balance in between those two stats, and so it's basically like, you know, you can use whatever stat you want to do whatever you want, but there is going to be a fictional repercussion to that decision if you really decide I am never going to use any stats but this one stat I specialized mm-hmm. in. Results may vary. Exactly, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so that's like a, and I think, you know, Dungeon World, I don't really, I, I don't, I haven't actually confirmed that that Defy Danger, because to me, I see a very clear line from Defy Danger to this Blades in the Dark sort of mechanic we're talking about. I don't know of it appearing in any game before Dungeon World, and I can't even think of any where it appeared other than Dungeon World. I actually, from when I was reading Dungeon World, um, I think I remember people in the Powered by the Apocalypse space saying that Defy Danger was kind of a bad practice in terms of the PBTA framework because it didn't have specific triggers and because it let and because it was open ended, you know, it, it, and I think um, initially it was almost seen as kind of a cop out, right? Like, well, if nothing else makes sense, then use this move, right? That's kind of like right. your fallback move. If nothing else makes sense, but you still need them to roll, have them roll defy danger, right? Which at, at its core is very simple, but like you said, um, moving to kind of expanding on that idea and making basically the entire dice mechanic based on just that uh, and being able to pick whatever stat you wanted, that's where you get more to the Blades in the Dark, Forged in the Dark system where what you have like, what, 15 or 12, 12 different stats? I think it's 12. And then, and they're all like super generic and could be used in different ways. And even in the, in the text, it'll say like... Um, you know, use rec to do this thing, this thing, or this thing, and then they all have a thing at the end that says, but, you know, skirmish might be better, or, you know, this other yeah. skill might be more applicable to that kind of situation, right? So they all have a, a, a somewhat related but different skill uh, that could be used instead, which you don't necessarily have in, in D&D or uh, Dungeon World. Yeah, it, it does that. It, it does a beautiful thing, which I love, which is, you know, a lot of games have an overlap between skills or stats. And in a lot of games, that's seen as a problem or a downside. You're looking at the, you're like, I want to do this thing, and then you and the DM need to argue over which stat is more appropriate because you have plus three in one and minus one in the other. Um, And so you're arguing for this one stat and the DM's arguing for this other one or whatever. I love that, you know, Blades kind of gamified that and said, uh, you know, you you can use this other stat, but this one might be better. And so it actually, it kind of relishes in the overlap between, say, Wreck and Skirmish, where Wreck is more about you know, just destroying things and skirmish is more about like a very calculated, but like still brute forcey kind of uh, fighting style. Like I like that overlap and I think it, you know, very much makes the game richer because it allows you to have more specificity without removing any of the expressiveness of the characters, if that makes sense. Like you can have one character that has a really high skirmish and one character that has a really high wreck. They're probably going to 
play in a very similar way in terms of what moves they're trying to make, but they're going to be described completely uh, differently. Right, and their outcomes are going to be different because yeah. they're, they are going about things in a different way. Yeah, I haven't necessarily had to argue a lot with DMs about um, you know what skill is applicable, but I mean, it, the skill list in like D&D... There's like a handful of like specific skills, but then like some of them aren't like, is this athletics or is it acrobatics? You know, and like that one comes up a lot, right? As to, and a lot of times the DM will be like, you know, make whichever one you want to make. It doesn't matter, you know? Um, But yeah, like you said here, it's just, it's gamifying it and it's saying, you know, this is, there are multiple options. There's not a set way of how you have to do things. Uh, Your character has to figure that out. and, And then all your DM has to say is, uh, well, here's the consequences for whatever you decide to do. Yeah, it's very interesting as well. I'm sorry, I'm also just thinking about this. It's very interesting that you mention that um, people say that defy danger is bad practice in PBTA. Because um, I haven't, I don't like, I haven't really encountered that perspective. I mean, I maybe I have and I've forgotten. I don't know, but that's a very interesting take. And I think it also kind of uh, goes into. I think what a lot of people say is is Dungeon World's like big overarching problem is that it kind of ha- tries to have its cake and eat it too. You know, it tries to do too many different things. Where if it just committed mm-hmm. to one, it probably would be cleaner. I think as far as because I really I really like Dungeon World and I especially like running Dungeon World because um, and especially for new players because the moves and stuff are all right there and they're gamified and like if you have your character sheet. And then the like basic rules sheet, like you know, you have all the rules to run the game, right? Like you don't have to look up like fall damage or you know any of these other like what are my what actions can I take, right? Like it's all in that, so it's super easy to to get started. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, I, I'm sure there are there are some issues with it, uh, but I think as far as especially a entry to PBTA or like a get your foot wet, uh, especially if you come from D&D, then Dungeon World is a really good place to start because you will have a lot of that familiarity. Uh, and, you're, and like I said, you're kind of getting your foot wet, seeing how the mechanics work and stuff. And then, you know, ideally that kind of flips off a light switch in your head and you're like, oh, okay, I want to try this other game that's maybe, you know, farther down the like PBTA, you know, kind of standard practice for for games or for, for game structure. Yeah. I think it's like a it's a it's a good point of first contact. And I think also one of its major strengths is it has such a great set of resources that go along with it. Um, I will see if I can find it to send to you. I know I mentioned well, so I know I mentioned last time I was on the show, I mentioned suddenly ogres. Do you remember that? I do a little bit. Yes. So just I guess for context, suddenly ogres is just like a it's I think it's literally a Google Doc um, where there's a move in Dungeon World. Um, there's two actually there's spout lore and discern realities. And both of those are kind of like information moves where it's like discern realities is like you use your wisdom and you say, okay, what can I discern about this situation? You know, who's in charge here? What's the biggest danger, whatever. And spout lore is, you know, I use my intelligence and I try and say, Oh, have I seen this monster before? Have I heard of this guy? Whatever. And a big question for new newcomers in PBTA and Dungeon World specifically is if someone fails that move, what do I do? Like, it's kind of lame if my player tries to spout lore and then fails and then just does it again, right? I have to 
I have to punish them for using the move somehow. Or not punish, but like I have to have some consequence for them using the move and failing, other than you don't get it. Fail and forward. Saying, yeah, exactly. And so suddenly Ogre is, is this whole document that is about different fun ways that you can make those moves have interesting and fun failures. And uh, yeah, so there's that. But there's another Google Doc, and I forget what it's called, but it basically just kind of does what I think that should be in the core dungeon world book. Like, I think that you could probably take this little, like, six-page PDF, inject it into the rule book, and it would make the rule book way better for newcomers, where it just kind of does what I was describing earlier, where it kind of says, like, much more explicitly, this is how a game should be playing out. You know, monsters don't have turns. You are not doing that. Like, you are specifically directing this scene almost like a movie and the characters are the only one with turns, and there's no initiative, and you know what I mean? Like, it's mu- very explicit in a way that, that I think the core book isn't. Yeah, I will say on the turns thing, um, monsters don't have explicit turns, but uh, I ran a one-shot recently um, where the party was, it was Dungeon World, and they were fighting a bunch of ogres, um, and I, I really didn't give the monsters a turn or a chance to like move or do anything, um, unless the players failed their roles. And what that led to was that the monsters, despite being like really strong, ended up dying because they a lot of times didn't really get a chance to fully react. Mm-hmm. So I think when I was kind of replaying it back in my head, I realized that I think I almost should have had them somewhat have turns or at least have a point uh because essentially I would just hit everybody around the table just because it, that was the easiest way to handle uh, not necessarily initiative, but just making sure that everybody got a chance to act and then, you know, the next thing would happen. I, what I really needed to do is also give the monsters a, a turn, essentially, to just do some more stuff or to move into a, a, a bad position for the party members uh, because I wasn't threatening them enough uh, mm-hmm. with, with the monsters. Um, and that was kind of... It really comes down to just being a tuning issue in that the encounter seemed like it was going to be more difficult than I actually allowed it to be. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think I could have pushed a lot harder uh, on the players. I think only one character took damage um, actually in that whole session. So, wow. um, but it was a lot of like, okay, the, mo- the ogre's coming at you. What do you do? You know, okay, they dodged to get out of the way. And okay, they got out of the way. Now, you know, okay, now they can make their attack. And then, you know, they ended up kind of ganging up on them and, and killing them before they really had um, much time to act, uh, which it ended up being really fun. Uh, just it was kind of like a DM, like retrospective, you know, could could have pushed a little harder, maybe should have given them more action time as monsters to be causing problems for the party. Right. I get that. I think it's 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 difficult like I think probably one of the biggest things that needs practice as a new Dungeon World DM and general PVTA DM is being able to threaten your players. That's really tough to do, kind of. You know, I think it's like it's something that in uh, that's something that maybe a D and D has over Dungeon World is that it's much easier to threaten your players because you have numbers to go off of. When you don't have those numbers to kind of fall back on and be like, well, if I crank the numbers up, obviously this whole thing's going to be way harder. You know, it's a very easy dial to turn. It's much harder to dial that up when it comes to like fictionally making enemies difficult. I just actually now, after I described that, I just realized what I needed to do. So when I, <laughs> when I said turns, what, 
what I meant was, you know, monsters don't take like an attack roll, right? In yeah. Dungeon World or, or PBTA. Um, and so like in DD, taking a turn would be monster moves, monster attacks. It, what I needed to be doing was, okay, everybody, all the players have gone. The monsters are going to act, but they're not necessarily going to immediately deal damage to somebody. They're going to, you know, gr- uh, move towards somebody and swing their club at them, right? Okay, now that player has an option to to deal with that problem. So turns not being, you know, it is like move and attack, but it's it's not moving, you know, immediate consequences. It's move and then or or make the players react in some way to something that they're to force them to react to what's happening versus I move and I deal damage to you. So um, and I w- wasn't doing enough of that. I think that um, Dungeon World actually even has the explicit language to discuss that, although I think it might come from Apocalypse World. Sometimes I have a hard time remembering which terminology comes from where, but in Dungeon World, you know, they, they have the soft move, which is a move where you show that something is about to happen, but it hasn't happened yet, and then you give the player the chance to intervene, as opposed to the hard move where a thing happens. Where, you know, it's the difference between the orc attacks you, you take five damage, and the orc is about to swing and hit you. One has very, very immediate consequences that just happen, and one has, you know, player intervention is now going to happen. Um, And I think, and that is a way that I've seen people discuss about modulating difficulty when it comes to Dungeon World. Like, you know, as far as making things easier, if I say, okay, the orc is, um, is, like, charging towards you, what do you do? And then the player says, oh, I'm going to try and dodge out of the way, and they fail. Now you're going to make, in in design in Dungeon World design language, you're now going to make a move. Generally speaking, it feels as though that should be a hard move. You know, they missed their roll, so now I'm going to make the hard move, which is you take five damage. But you could make another soft move, which is, you know, he's charged at you, but now there's two others coming around behind you, and you're completely flanked. They're in kind of a worse situation than they were before, but you've actually pushed the consequences further down the line and given them another chance to roll, to redeem themselves. Um, and it's a way that you can almost even be fudging numbers without actually fudging numbers. You know what I mean? And you're escalating the danger because you're you're definitely in a worse place, you know, taking five damage. Now you're taking, you know, 10 or 15 damage maybe because you're surrounded, right? But like you said, they have another opportunity to maybe not take damage now or not suffer those consequences or or give us an ally an opportunity to to jump in and, and help them. Exactly. It gives the, it, it raises the stakes without actually necessarily bringing down the hammer yet. And I think on the opposite end, that's, so that's a way to make things easier, which I've always found quite elegant. Another way, it's a way to make things a little harder that I've also seen is, you know, uh, as an, an example, I, I don't know why I vividly remember this example, but um, there was one I saw, I think it was on Reddit somewhere, that was saying... You know, I have a player who's playing an elf ranger and they just always knock things out so quickly. How do I handle that? Whatever. And so the example someone gave is, you know, the same way that you can push soft moves down the line. uh, Sorry, push hard moves down the line. Push, you know, you're not going to take damage yet, but now you're in a worse situation. You can also add more rolls before they get to do what they want to do. So, okay, you, you have some archers who are in a tower that are shooting at the players. Well, the player wants to go run up, you know, throw a rope up, climb up the side, or maybe jump up or something, I don't know, and attack the archers. Okay, well, you as DM can either say, all right, you do that, you volley to shoot them, or you jump up there and you hack and slash or whatever. 
Or you can introduce some roles in the middle and say, okay, well, on your way up there, they're shooting at you, so you have to defy danger. Or, okay, well, on your way up there, you know, you, it's really slippery or something, and so you have to maybe, again, defy danger. Um, or there's an orc that gets in your way as you're trying to get up there, and you have to attack them first before you can get to the archers. There's so many moves you can add in the middle um, to make it harder as well, as long as, you know, you're, you can come up with the moves. That's also the, the difficult part, though. The other example there is, like, with the dragon, like, can you just walk up to a dragon and, and slash it with your sword? Uh, no. Um, if you get close to the dragon, it's probably going to try to breathe fire at you. So you got to get past that. And then if you dodge that, it'll probably swing its tail at you. And then you got to watch out for the teeth. Uh, you know, then you might have a chance. Um, if you have like a magic sword that can even pierce scales in the first place, right? Like, yeah, if you take an iron sword and try to swing it against a dragon, it's probably just going to clank off. You know, it's, you're probably not even going to trigger the move. Um, so yeah, I, I like that idea of either moving hard moves up or, um, well, you're not really moving the hard moves up. You're just adding in soft moves. Um, and with like the, the dragon too, you could make, uh, and they kind of recommend it, um, add the hard moves up front, right? Like if you walk yeah. up to a dragon and say, I'm going to kill you, uh, the dragon might just bite you and eat you. <laughs> you know, <laughs> like that is totally within the game and the narrative, right? Like, in D and D, could a could a dragon do that? I mean, I think your players would be pretty upset about like, hey, that's not in the rules. It's like, yeah, but it's a dragon, right? <laughs> you're, a, you're just an elf. Like, what? It, what are you gonna do about uh, it? Unless, <laughs> unless you can get out of the way and dodge its mouth or or something, like it, it just eats you. Yeah, I think it's it's like a you know it's interesting you mentioned like also that sort of fictional positioning to get the attack out because I think that is so that's what fellowship does it takes that kind of its to its logical extreme the thing that's crazy about fellowship is every monster has one hp that's it like there might be you know they have sort of they have kind of like maybe a number amount of hp equal to their number of um what's it called uh stats is what they're called but they're not really stats is it like a they're, difficulty or something no of? they're they're like attributes so an oh, example okay. is wolves have two stats uh one is pack hunter and one is vicious and pack hunter is you know this thing attacks in packs so there's at least five of them probably all surrounding you and that has some sort of mechanical effect whatever and vicious if it gets up on top of you you instantly take damage okay um makes sense so the idea is when you try and attack the wolf you are probably going to be damaging one of its stats. So maybe you manage to get in there and break up the wolves or something, and so no longer does it have the stat Pack Hunter. Cool. Mm -hmm. And then maybe you injure it enough or you scare it enough that it's no longer vicious. Okay. Um, but there is a move called Finish Them. That's kind of the quote-unquote hack and slash of this game. It's the, it's the bread and butter attack. But the thing about Finish Them is it instantly... I'm not going to say kills, because that's actually not what it does. It instantly... Um, handles the threat. Whatever that thing was that was threatening you, it is no longer a threat. It is completely removed from play. That could mean you killed it. That could mean you convinced it to run away. That could mean that sure. any number of things. But the point is, it's no longer a threat. And so those removing the stats from the monster make it easier to get the um, to to actually trigger the move. Finish them, but you actually to actually trigger that move at all like once you've triggered that move you've kind of won you basically need very strong fictional positioning to even trigger that move 
because uh, I'm pretty sure the the text of it reads something like when you are in a when you have an advantageous position over an enemy. That could be socially, that could be physically, whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, and actually, you know, I I said earlier I couldn't remember any other examples of a defy danger, but finish them actually does do a defy danger kind of thing where you can finish them with any stat you want. Uh, you just have to justify it. You have to justify it using your fictional positioning. So if your team, and it, this this is actually something that really encourages teamwork in that game, which I like. Um, if your teammate distracts, you know, a whole set of orcs, you can finish the whole thing, the whole set of orcs in one move if you have a giant cannon or something you're going to shoot at them, right? Like if you have the fictional positioning, go ahead, you got it. Um, but if your teammate is distracting them and now you can take them all out in one blow and you say, okay, I'm going to finish them with my intelligence, you're going to have to convince the DM that that makes any amount of sense. Um, which I really, I think is, I think it, you know, I think it makes more sense maybe for this sort of attack move than it does for defy danger because it's more about, it's more active, right? Defy danger is a reactive move. I I really need to read that book now. (laughs) (laughs) It's it's good. I, and it's quite short actually. And uh, the art is also really good, which is always a bonus, you know. But, yeah, I'm uh, yeah. to have to pick that up. Because uh, there's a lot of things in there that I, I was vaguely aware of, but I hadn't heard some of those other, other pieces. So I'm really interested to see uh, what else I've been missing um, in my games. Mm-hmm. I think it's probably like a really... It's, it, that's probably the hardest thing to come to terms with in the game is just that there's basically HP. Uh, like there is... There, like I said, there is kind of... It's a little weird... Uh, and I think it probably isn't explained the best, but it is, you know, it's it's a small game. It's made by one person. Like, you know, there's only so much you can ask for. Um, but I, I really like the ideas it brings to the table. You know what I mean? Yeah. And and actually, even Dungeon World having it has HP, but the, the numbers are pretty low. I think. Yeah, I think even if you focused on your constitution every time you leveled up, I think like the max you can get is like 26 or 28 health. And like you start with like ten plus your con, I think, or some number plus your constitution. So like you're starting with like ten to fifteen, and the max you can get is like maybe double that. Yeah. You know, you don't you don't have the like runaway, you know, HP numbers that you get in like a D and D game where all of a sudden your combat just becomes like who can do more damage over the course of, uh, you know, six rounds of combat before the other, you know, team falls. Yeah, you also don't get the same, uh, uh, what's it called? Not turn economy. You know what the term I'm looking for is? Action economy. Thank you, that's right. the one. Um, yeah, you you miss, you miss get to also kind of sidestep a lot of the action economy issues. Um, because, you know, okay, yeah, you have people taking actions against your monster, but you can kind of fictionally set it up where even if they take five moves against it before it gets to move once... It's not going down. It's you know, it's a giant dragon. It's it's made of tougher stuff. Well, and like we said, you can force the players to have to react to it, right? If you if all the players can make an attack on it, but it essentially also gets to react and breathe fire at you or try to fly away or you know, which is something that in D D, you know, you don't typically get. Like it's it's stuck there until its turn. You know, unless it has some other ability, whereas within Dungeon World, like if everybody runs at a dragon to surround it, like it could just fly up, you know, and it, it, I don't know. It's just the way that the because you don't have turns, official turns anymore, uh, they they can kind of act as needed uh, between player actions. Yeah, 
it's a it's a very I think it's 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 kind of a give and take. Like it makes the game much more expressive, but it also makes it a little harder to pick up as a GM initially. Um, so it's kind of a it's kind of a back and forth in that. Yeah, it, it definitely my first time running it. I didn't it just didn't click until I had listened to um, some people some actual plays, um, and then it was like, oh, okay, I, I see what they're doing here, and I see how they're moving things versus just you know. Player moves here, does thing. Monster moves here, does thing. You know, it, it gets a lot more cinematic than that, um, which is part of the fun. Yeah, um, I'm interested. Do you have any experience with any of the? Because I think the other I mentioned earlier, like that Dungeon World has probably among, as far as I'm aware, among the most resources of any of the Powered by the Apocalypse games I know. Have you ever worked with any of kind of the hacks like um, One Shot World or Homebrew World? Or I think there's also like Freebooters on the Frontier is one of them. There's like so many different like hacks of the game. I've, that... I've seen a bunch of them. I haven't done much with any of the hacks. I have written like three custom classes. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, but one other thing I'll say about Dungeon World or PBTA in general is that um, writing moves is incredibly easy to do once you've just looked at a handful of them. Um, obviously, I'm, I'm sure I could do things better, but like the just following some of the different like move templates that they have not not templates, but just taking other moves. You know, there's like a couple, there's a few different ways that they're typically worded, and it's pretty easy to pick up that wording and just tweak it for whatever you need it to do. Mm-hmm. And it's uh, a lot of fun. It's a good game, actually. Here, wait, and I have sorry, um, it's um. I, I I think I haven't actually played Dungeon World in quite a long time though, and I kind of miss it to be honest. Um, just given how much content there is for it out there, just like freely available, because so many people just like made hacks of it in very small ways and made settings for it. There's a one out there uh, where is it? I think it's called Grim World or something like that. Yeah, I think I've heard of that one. Um, that basically just makes the game much more like almost horror focused. Uh, it's so cool. I'm I'm a huge fan of it. Um, and I kind of wish I delved into some of those more, but I've only really ever played kind of the vanilla um, Dungeon World experience. And, I, you know, we've talked we actually talked about this in the server a bit, but I also just love like the um, I think I think it was a community. Um, yeah, someone made like this community class, the villager, which I love for Dungeon World. Yes, we did talk about that. And, and that's like you're like level zero character. And then if you survive your first adventure, then, you know, congratulations, you get to take an actual playbook and, and be an actual character now. Yeah. Adventurer. Where like a lot of adventures, like, you know, a lot of like, um, I know that the, the ranger has moves that are based around, you know, tracking things and having a, an animal companion and cleric has moves for praying and casting spells. The villagers moves are about selecting your stats and forming bonds with people you know, other players and people in the community. And so at the end, and your stats are constantly in flux, and then it's only at the end when you quote-unquote level up and choose a class where you kind of solidify all of your stats, which are now much more immutable. I almost want something like that for uh, D&D because, and I talked about this on one of the other episodes, um, almost D&D, especially making a character, is decently complicated especially if you're not familiar with making a character mm-hmm. um and having something like this right where you're like you don't need to know anything about your character 
and we're just going to figure it all out in the session, right? And like I think you like you said the in the villager playbook, the first like whenever you roll, you you like decide what stat you're rolling with or however the move triggers, and then it's like okay, now if you don't have a number in your stat, put one of your available numbers in your stat, and that's your stat now, right? Exactly. So like you don't even have to decide your stats until it comes up in the game and then like if you're like oh i really need to make a deck save right now well i haven't done anything yet i'm putting my highest number in decks you know and then that's how you end up with your character uh it would almost be nice to have something like that in D as well to say like here's your like initial sheet and we're gonna just gonna fill it out as we go you know it, it kind of reminds me of um because it, it, the thing that's wonderful about it is that you're making your character through play you know uh, you you are because there's always that session zero where you sit around and you talk about the rules and everyone makes their character. But you, turning that into a session of play is brilliant, and it reminds me of you know in video games people talk about doing the tutorial in play rather than as like this didactic thing that happens at the start of the game right. where they just tell you through text boxes here's how you play the game. They teach you through play. I mean, Valve is like always like the people thing like Half Life and stuff. People always bring that up. I think it would be so cool to get a little more of that in tabletop RPGs in general. And I recognize that that's not always going to work for everyone and for every kind of game. But I just I would love to see more of that style of thinking in, you know, playbooks and RPGs in general. It's like you're playing the backstory. Exactly. You don't have to come up with it. You're just you're just playing it. Make it up on the spot. Have someone ask you like, oh, yeah, didn't you slay a dragon one time? And then you say like, oh, no, I didn't actually. I just stole some gold from it. And then it made me promise that, you know, I'd never tell anyone or whatever. And now I'm actually <laughs> a servant. Like you, you get to do those kinds of like crazy out of the box things that you would never do sitting alone in your room coming up with a character concept. Right. Um, we did a session zero for a D&D campaign, actually, and we pretty much all rolled everything. Uh, including like relationships and how we were connected. Uh, mm -hmm. And it had kind of a similar feel to it because uh, instead of everybody coming to the table with like, here's my character and my, you know, my paragraph backstory, it was like, okay, I'm this person and I am apparently out for revenge and I want to loot corpses. Okay. So that tells me a little bit about my character. And then there's this other person. Oh, they're, uh, they were involved with a cult apparently. Um, <laughs> okay. So like, and then we started, as these things started getting rolled, we're like connecting the dots between the characters, right? We're like, oh, oh, this makes sense, you know? Right, yeah. And in and, and this situation, you're getting a lot of that through just kind of an, turning turning what we did in that session zero into actually like playing an adventure. Right. It's 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 also just very funny, the concept of like, oh, so who's your guy again? Oh, yeah, I'm rolls dice, checks notes, arrested for arson? <laughs> <laughs> I like that idea, and I think it's very that that kind of thing is would also be a very especially fun for like one shots. I mean, expanding that into a larger campaign is sick, but I think that also lends itself really well to just getting going. Like, let's start playing right now. Yeah, I think especially for new players, the I've always said like if you're a new player, find a one shot, and then hopefully they have like pre-generated characters or something because you, the best thing you can do to get into the hobby is to just start playing it and then come back, make it make like a long-term character after you've got a little bit of play time under your belt. Cause then you understand like what things are important to you and what, what isn't. Um, and, and just being able to do some of that stuff on the fly right away. Like you said, with video games, you, they don't, they don't make you read like a, 
textbook first and then say, okay, now you know how to play the game. Here you go. You know, they drop you in with super simple stuff to get you started. And then by the end of it, you're like, oh, I know how to play the whole game. Yeah, it's 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 a very like it's funny. (laughs) You're kind of right, though. Like, oh, before you can play the game, you have to read this textbook. Like, you're not wrong. (laughs) It's it's kind of unfortunate as like a barrier to entry. And I I often wonder about um, which games are actually easiest to start with. Because I think, you know, in theory, it seems like Powered by the Apocalypse games might be the easiest. And I think that that's probably true. But I don't know that that's true. So when I ran the one shot, the, the Dungeon World one shot a couple weeks ago, um, it was mostly with people who are familiar. It was people from the server. So they, they have all played, um, you know, fifth edition at the very least. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they all picked up Dungeon World extremely fast. Uh, and like I said before, I feel like a lot of that has to do with just all of the moves are right there on your sheets. And it's like, okay, I want to do this thing. What, how do I do that? Okay. Hack and slash game. When I do this thing, this happens. Here's my options for my outcomes. Uh, all right. Yep. I like the rules are right there. Whereas in like D and D for example, right. It's like, how do I make an attack? Well, depends on what type of weapon you have. Uh, it's dex or strength, or maybe it's a melee weapon, but it's got finesse, so it's still dex, and then you add your your modifier and your proficiency, and then you roll a d20, and, you know, in Dungeon World, it's like, when you do this thing, uh, roll plus your strength, and then you're good, right? It's all yeah. it's all encapsulated, it's all there, it's super fast, you don't have to know everything, you just, you know, DM says, hey, roll this move, you just look at the move, do what it says, and then resolve it. I think it's it's a, a part of the issue with the more complicated systems is like, you know, um, my 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 bias is showing here, especially. But like, you know, inspired by the name of this podcast, like I don't know if you've seen there's a Game Makers Toolkit video, which for context, YouTube, it's a YouTube channel that talks about game design um, is a there's a video about like, you know, civilization or like Crusader Kings style games where he talks about how to teach those games. and he basically says something like, you know, it's it's not really teaching someone to say, press this button, then press this button, then press this button. Okay, now you know how to play the game, right? Like, it's you really should be telling people, do this, and then, like, you know, instead of saying, press this button, you should be saying, okay, put a worker on the field, and then the player needs to, like, actually engage their brain to figure out how to do that. Um, where, like, I know that when I started playing D&D, I had a DM that was, you know, great person, very kind, very helpful, uh, did not actually help me learn the game because if I said, oh, I want to attack, they'd say, okay, they'd look at my character sheet and then say, okay, roll a d20 and then I roll a d20 and then be like, okay, add this, this number, this number, this number. Okay, this is what you got, right? Like I never actually had to learn the rules because they were just telling me what numbers on the, on demand, they would tell me what numbers I needed to add. There's so much work as a DM. Yeah. Oh yeah. Um, and, but it also meant that I never actually learned the rules. And to this day, my understanding of like what numbers get used when in D and D is pretty shaky. Yeah. There's a, there's a lot that gets added in, which is confusing, especially for new players. And I, I love D and I'm in two D and D fifth edition campaigns right now. So like as much as I, and maybe saying like D and D does these things bad, I'm also, I also still enjoy the system. Um, there are just things that I really like about, PBTA and oh, yeah. Dungeon World. 
So. No, yeah. I mean, I'm. I mean, like, I also love D and I'm in a D and D group right now. Like, it's just, it's very much like punching up. You know, like it's. I don't think there's anyone's gonna have issues with like criticizing D and don't think that people are gonna be dropping D and D now that you know. I'm like, <laughs> oh, D and perfect, guys. Yeah, and no, no system is perfect. So I just don't want people to be like, oh man, you're beating up on on D and D all the time. But that's um, fair. Yeah, it's. Like you said at the beginning, we kind of criticized Dungeon World a little bit at the beginning, um, but also because we really enjoy it. So then we also have things that that bother us about it. So I'm very opinionated about the things. I like. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Well, I think we're about to time, so I think we can cut the episode here. But um, thanks for coming on, Liam. I had a great time talking to you about Dungeon World. Yes, that was a blast. Thank you for having me on. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of the Dungeon Master's Toolkit Podcast. You can find links to all of the products and resources that we talked about on the show in the show notes. And if you'd like to join the community or find out how to be on the show, check out our subreddit or join us in our Discord server.